often the big challenges of faith for us come in the form of the practicalities of life in this world. Isn't that so often the case? Aren't those so often the things that we really fret over and the things that stretch our faith the very most? Will God be with me? This is Encounter of the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue a message looking at the faithfulness of God. And Jonathan, I think it's important for us to look at that, to look at that regularly, because as you point out, sometimes as we go through some of the struggles, the practicalities of life, we do question that. We do wonder sometimes about God's faithfulness. Well, when things in life are not working out well for us or where we struggle to see how God's plans are being worked out for us in the circumstances we face, one of our challenges of faith, one of our temptations really, will be to question the faithfulness of God. Is he true to his word? Has he forgotten me? Does he still love me? Does he still care about me? And we all know something of those those questions and those struggles if we're followers of Christ. But the stories of Scripture, the stories of the lives of the, the saints of old teach us that even in the ups and the downs of circumstances, God is true to his people and true to his word. And we certainly see that in the life of Abraham and in the life of Sarah. And we see God's faithfulness to his promises and his faithfulness to his people worked out in a wonderful way in this particular section of the story. Well, that section we're looking at today comes from the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 21 as we continue the message, the God of astounding faithfulness. Here is Jonathan. On the morning of Hagar and Ishmael's departure, Abraham gets up early, no doubt with a, with a heavy heart. He prepares a skin of water and some bread. He gives it to Hagar. He sends her away with the boy, with their son. And you can just imagine all the emotions within the heart of Abraham that morning. Guilt, sadness, conflicted loyalty, regret, but off they go to wander, verse 14, in the wilderness of Beersheba. I gather that this is a pretty tough environment, pretty inhospitable, pretty dry, pretty sparse in terms of vegetation and cover. Soon enough, predictably, the water is gone. Hagar puts her son under some bushes to shield him from the elements, and the scene is now entirely heart-rending, verse 16. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about a distance of a bow shoot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Evidently, both mother and child are now crying out in despair, crying out in fear, crying out for any kind of help. It's a tragic scene of vulnerability and isolation. But verse 17 is really quite beautiful. Notice it with me. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? And of course he knew. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God heard. God saw. There was no one else there to help. They were totally alone, and there are those situations, are there not, where we can be isolated and vulnerable in our needs. Perhaps that's your situation in some measure today. Does anyone see? Does anyone hear? Does anyone care? Can anyone help? Well, God sees. He hears. He cares 
and he can help. He sees every vulnerability. He hears every cry of heart. What a thought that is. What a truth. And hearing and seeing, he extends his kindness now. And he, it's clear that he does so in particular out of faithfulness to Abraham. That's very, very interesting. God had indicated this intention in verse 13. He's, he's going to make a nation out of Ishmael. This won't be the end of Ishmael's story. And he will do so because of Abraham, because he is Abraham's son. Now, Hagar and Ishmael, they've, they've left the covenant household. They've left the place of blessing. Ishmael has actually despised the son of the promise. Hagar is going to go and seek a wife for him from Egypt, and that's never a good thing, going down to Egypt. She's not going to seek a, a wife for him from the people of God. They're not inside the realm of God's salvation here. I, I think they've, they've stepped away. That's the symbolic significance. But God is still showing his kindness to them. He is doing it in a special sense on account of his promises to Abraham and seeing that, observing it, it just expands our view and our understanding of God's faithful concern. I don't know the particulars of your circumstances, but I'm sure there are some with us today, some listening, who are in that very tough situation of having children or grandchildren who have walked away from the faith that they were once taught. They're off in the wilderness, as it were, and it, it burdens you. It, it grieves you. Well, in the midst of that heartache, don't imagine that God doesn't care about them anymore. The scene in the wilderness is a lovely picture of how God's faithful care follows people, even as they are traveling away from the household of faith. He hasn't forgotten them. They're not off his radar Obviously, we need to pray for salvation to follow such people, and that's a serious matter. The story isn't telling us that God's salvation reaches every wanderer, but in practical terms, what kindness God shows. Verse 19, then God opened her eyes, and she's all well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife from the land of Egypt. The Lord made a way for this family, this mother and son. He made a future for him, gave him gifts and skills, and in earthly terms, he blessed him. And it shows us something of the faithfulness and the kindness of God that seems to almost overflow and spill over from the household of faith and even reach out into the wilderness. It's wonderful to see. We see another aspect of this too, God's faithfulness in practical matters, just briefly at the end of the chapter. You'll remember that Abraham got into some really hot water in the previous chapter with Abimelech. He deceived him. He almost caused Abimelech to fall under the full and immediate judgment of God. And Abraham got there because he was fearing what Abimelech, this unbelieving Gentile king, would do to him as he traveled through the land under his control. But what happens here is really quite wonderful. Abimelech notices that this man, Abraham, enjoys the blessing of God. This, this man sojourning in, in his land, as Abimelech would see it, this man has something special about him. And rather than resent that or want to persecute Abraham and drive him out, Abimelech is actually drawn to Abraham. In fact, he seems to have a kind of fearful respect for him. Notice it with me, verse 22. 
At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And so Abraham was shown favor. He and this Gentile king, they they made a covenant together. And just notice how it all ends there. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. The Lord so worked in the situation, in the relationship, in the heart of this king, that Abraham was given peace and liberty to worship the Lord and to dwell for many days in the land of the Philistines. The Lord has taken this potentially very, very ugly situation, a relationship that started off on precisely the wrong foot. He has taken it all and he has made a way for Abraham in this new land among a people who might well have been his enemies, who should have been his enemies. In the details, in the practicalities of life, in the providential provisions, God shows himself faithful. Friends, for you and for me, the big challenges of faith are not always to believe that God will save us in the end that he will save us when we are knocking on eternity's door, save us from the fires of hell and welcome us into his eternal kingdom. Often the big challenges of faith for us come in the form of the practicalities of life in this world. Isn't that right? Isn't that so often the case? Aren't those so often the things that we really fret over and the things that stretch our faith the very most? Will God be with me? Will God go before me as I, as I move to a new place, as I start a new job? Will he watch over my children and my loved ones in these uncertain times? Can I trust him in my new season of uncertainty with health or with finances, with my family situation that just threatens to unravel before my eyes? Will he be faithful in all these things? And of course, there's no promise here that God is going to spare us all grief and all loss and all difficulty. No, that's not the promise of the passage. But this account, it shows us the full depth and breadth of the loving care and faithfulness of God, His faithfulness in the practicalities of life in this world. He he has His finger on the details. He goes before us. He hears the cry. He sees the distress even of those who are at present living in the wilderness. I don't know what are the burdens of your heart today for the practicalities of life, the cares and the worries. Practicalities for your life, the life of those you love. But do you trust him in those things? Will you trust him? And will I? We see God's faithfulness in the practicalities of life, but we see it not only there, we see his faithfulness in the promise of salvation. There is, of course, something much bigger going on here than the dramas of one man and one family living at one point in ancient history in one particular corner of the world. Right at the start of the Abraham story, you'll remember back in Genesis 12, God made it clear that the story of this family would be painted on the grand canvas of world history, of salvation history. Abraham's life and Abraham's future would be about the blessing of God coming to a broken world. It's about the bigger drama of the fall 
and God's grand plan to make all things new. Let me just remind you of the promise of God back in Genesis 12, that famous promise. God, God comes to Abraham. He, he sort of taps him on the shoulder, as it were, and says to him, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise. That's the start of the story. And as the story has progressed, the great barrier to this plan of God has been the childlessness of Abraham and of Sarah. That's been the great tension in the narrative, the great crisis at the very heart of this drama. Abraham and Sarah, they make a variety of missteps in thinking that the burden was upon them to find a solution to the crisis of infertility. In chapter 15, the, the attempted solution was the naming of an alternative heir. In chapter 16, it was having a child by Hagar, the maidservant. But God continually reaffirms his promise to give this couple a child. That's his plan. That's his purpose. And the mess of chapter 16 well, that doesn't disrupt it. After that, God makes it clear once again that his plan and his purpose, his promise is unchanged. Genesis 17 and verse 19, God reaffirms it. He says to Abraham, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Abraham, your attempt to find another solution through Hagar, that is not going to be the way. The plan has been a long time in coming to fruition, but it's never deviated, never changed. And so we reach chapter 21 in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now, as we read that line, as we read that statement we have to pause and recognize how familiar is this motif and this storyline, how familiar it is for us as New Testament people. The plan of God comes to a point of wonderful fruition when the Lord brings a child to a woman in the most unlikely of circumstances. Sound familiar? The Lord gives a child to a woman who should not be expecting, and he does so by a miraculous intervention and in accordance with his word of promise. We've seen it before, haven't we? Our minds turn quickly to Mary and Joseph and their startling news all those centuries later. And in this ancient moment of the fulfillment of God's promise, we see a pointer, don't we, to the greater fulfillment yet to come those centuries later. God will bring salvation just as He promised through Abraham's son, through his son Isaac, but ultimately He will bring that plan to a greater fruition through the greater son to come, even the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The God of Astounding Faithfulness. We're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just one moment. By the way, if you ever join us late, you have to leave early, or you miss a broadcast and you want to go back and listen to what you missed on the radio, you can always come and listen at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Our message today is part of a series we're calling The Blessing as we continue our look at Genesis 21. So if you don't have a Bible handy, you can grab one and join us there as we get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. 
Now here in chapter 21, the promised child, the baby of miraculous conception, he takes center stage. God's plans, God's purposes, they do revolve around him. And it is actually the central importance of this child, the centrality of this child within the salvation plan of God that ultimately makes sense of this narrative. I don't know if you felt this at all as we were reading it, but there is something a little strange, isn't there? Something a little bit kind of jarring about the fact that Hagar and her young son are sent away into the wilderness. After all, doesn't that just seem a little bit harsh, maybe? A little bit tough? Don't we have some sympathy with Abraham when he's reluctant to follow through? Don't we wonder just a little why God seems to be for this plan? Well, we will only make sense of it when we see that the promised baby, Isaac, is at the very heart of all that is going on here. Just keep that in mind as we look again at the details briefly. There's that great rejoicing at Isaac's birth, a grand celebration. But here's that fly in the ointment, verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she calls for Hagar and Ishmael to be thrown out. Abraham's upset, verse 11, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Now, to us, Sarah looks wrong here, and Abraham looks right. That's how most of us will essentially read this. That's what we assume. But that's not how God seems to see it. And that comes as a bit of a surprise to us. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. But surely, surely that's a little bit tough. I mean, of course, the boy, he shouldn't have been mean-spirited. He shouldn't have been mocking in his tone toward Isaac. But this seems, isn't this an overreaction? And Abraham, he doubtless had a real sense of affection for Ishmael in a time where children were perhaps less certain to live through infancy and childhood than they are today. Perhaps the elderly father thought to himself it wasn't such a bad idea to have two sons in the house. So why is it right for Hagar and Ishmael to go? End of verse 12. Notice the reason God gives. Do what Sarah says, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The promise, the blessing, the covenant, the salvation plan, it's all going to come through Isaac. You do not need and you should not keep a second son in the household as a backup plan. Ishmael is not the plan, and he never will be. And more than that, Ishmael's response and reaction to the promised child, it actually sets him outside the blessings of the household in an ultimate sense. Isaac is God's miraculous gift to Abraham and Sarah. He is the means by which God will bring his blessing to the world, even salvation blessing. And Ishmael has shown, even in his youth, that his heart is set against this child of promise. And so he is to go. The coming of Isaac, the departure of Ishmael, it teaches us two vitally important truths. Teaches us, on the one hand, that God will save in his way, by his appointed means, in accordance with his spoken word, and without the help or scheming of human agents. Ishmael, he was a backup plan. He came from Abraham and Sarah's scheming. And his departure, it is a sadness, but it is also a confirmation 
a confirmation that God's salvation will come on His terms and not on our terms. Added to all that, the departure of Ishmael teaches us that access to salvation blessings, it is tied to our reaction to the miraculous child of promise. Ishmael and Hagar were sent away, and that was a costly thing for this young mother, this single mother and her son. They were sent away because Ishmael despised the promised child, the child who would be the means of God's salvation. This was the trigger for everything. And as you and I stand back from all this and consider it and observe it, it does leave us with a question and a challenge. Will we take God at His word? Will we trust His promised salvation? Will we delight in the child of His promise? I've suggested before in this series and at other times that the default mode of the human heart is a works-based religion, a do-it-yourself approach to salvation. Thanks to YouTube, we're all becoming do-it-yourself home renovation experts, mechanics, plumbers, you name it, but we need to admit that there are certain things that we cannot do, cannot figure out, cannot achieve on our own, and salvation is chief among those things. Ishmael represented Abraham and Sarah's attempt to do God's work for him. It was a very human endeavor. And his dramatic exit from the story, it is a stark reminder, even a warning, that the spiritual do-it-yourself approach will never work and can never work. But God's plan is to save us in His own way, through His own purpose and plan, through Jesus through His coming, through His life, through His death, through His resurrection. God's plan and His purpose is to save us through the promised child and to make us His very own. And all that is, is ours as we simply trust in the promise and receive the Son, we receive the inheritance with Him and the welcome and the place within the family of promise. But we need to see, we need to see how seriously God takes our response to the child. We cannot have a home with God. We cannot be part of the family. We cannot enjoy His blessings if we will not welcome and receive the Son. So many in our world, they scorn Him, and they despise Him, and they reject Him, they mock Him. And the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, it is a warning that God will not welcome those who do not accept His plan and His provision, who do not welcome His Son. question comes up a lot. I was asked it just this week. What about people around the world who are devout in their own religion, committed to God in their own way? What does the God of the Bible make of that commitment? How will He respond to devout people who are not Christian believers. And the answer the Bible gives us is this. God has made His way of salvation. He has worked out His promises in accordance to what He has spoken. And having done that, the key issue is this. How will you and I respond to what God has spoken, to what God has promised, to what God has done? How will we respond to His Son? And for some who are with us today, that's the key issue that you need to grapple with personally. God has worked out His plan of salvation. The offer to accept it by faith is there, but what will you make of it? 
what will you make of him? God is the God of total faithfulness. Faithfulness in his care and provision in the practicalities of life. He's faithful in working out his plan of salvation as promised, even through his son. And so the question for us as we close, will we be a people who take him at his word? Will we trust him today and for all the days that are to come? Jonathan Griffiths with a look at the faithfulness of God today, seeing his faithfulness at work in the practicalities of life and at work in the promise of salvation. Our message is called The God of Astounding Faithfulness. And if you've missed any part of uh, this broadcast or any previous broadcast in our series called The Blessing, you can come to our website and listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider a gift of support because it is your generosity that keeps Jonathan's teaching on this station. Again, you can listen online or support the ministry by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.